Hi, this is Andy. And hi, this is Sunny. And you are listening to the Business Over Chai podcast. Our mission is to share startup stories that will inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs across the South Asian community. Rashim Katecha is a founder of Podium Perfect. Resh started a career in financial services and then later went on to an organization called Women to Win, which helps women stand for parliament and public life. She's also the two times prospective parliamentary candidate in the UK general election and also in 2015 was the youngest BME general election candidate. Resh has been featured in Financial Times, The Times of India and Seek Channel. Resh has also been in a number of strategic consulting positions, advising companies such as Citibank, Aetner, Bloomberg, Pfizer and the Asian Business Leadership Forum. Resh's fairly new business called Podium Perfect started early in 2020. Podium Perfect offers public speaking training and mentoring for people from all over the globe. Resh has had over 35,000 signups from over 100 nations to date. So Rashim, a great place to start will be about your upbringing, your schooling and university life. Um, Can you tell us a bit about that, please? Uh, Of course. So I am very lucky to have wonderful parents who were immensely supportive and encouraging to both me and my twin sister. So Ria is two minutes older than me and we grew up absolutely the best of friends. And the one rule that there was in my house was that we weren't allowed to fight or argue. So I think the only memories we have of being told off would be if we had a fight with each other and didn't make up, then my parents kind of were very quick to let us know that was not okay. So so we went to the same school, but we were in different classes, but we had a lot of the same friends in and out of school. My parents are hugely social, um, both incredibly clever. And so, you know, they always pushed us to be our best. And actually what's great is when we were, when my mum was pregnant with us, they had a policy in the UK to not tell Asian parents what they were expecting because there was so much, you know, people wanting boys. And my parents were actually the exact opposite and were praying that they would have girls. So it was great that the whole time growing up, the, the mantra in our house was, you can do anything a boy can do, you can do it better. So it was great to have that progressive liberal upbringing although we were brought up very close to our heritage and our culture my parents are Hindu and Jain so we did lots of activities growing up you know we went to Sunday school we did lots of Navratri and Diwali and we did Hinduism GCSEs so we grew up with this real mix of being very aware of our culture and heritage and went to India every year twice a year sometimes but also you know very much feeling like we fit into our friendship groups in the UK. So I think our parents gave gave us this really great upbringing. Um, University, I read economics at university. And I think um, I've always been a geek. I love statistics. I love policy. And I think at university was where I really felt that freedom to, to be that geek and to love the policy and to have, you know, these debates all day, all night about what mattered and what didn't and policies and stuff. And I think that's where my real love of policy making came from. Fantastic. That's, that's great to hear. Thank you for that. Um, and in our previous research that we've done, or conversations we've had with you, Resham, I know you've mentioned that your parents ran and continue to run their own business. Mm. Um, however, you never saw that as something that interests you and perhaps you even saw it as a stressful no. way of life. <laughs> yes. It's, 
it's quite interesting given now that you know you're on the verge of you know well you already have started your, your own business um how do you feel about you know starting your own business now and do you still see it as a stressful way of life so so you're absolutely right my, my parents are semi-retired now but my whole life um they have run their own businesses so they were both they ran a, an accountancy practice the two of them working together and and so i always knew they were doing that i mean my mom went back to work when my sister and i were kind of six seven weeks old so i've always grown up with this real inspiration of the two of them running a business my dad then ran a business that supplied threads zips cottons everything you need to make clothes other than the cloth itself to some pretty big clients so you know they had warehouses and factories and my dad would travel a lot overseas for business so it was something i saw a lot growing up but i think as the children of business owners you also hear a lot about you know management issues or running a business issues and i think i went to university from 2007 to 10 so i also kind of was shaped a lot those formative years by the financial crisis and that real, I think, stressful element of being responsible for people's jobs and the loss of their jobs. So I think that really shaped my perspective on business. I thought, you know, really respect the people who do it, but it's so much more stressful than just doing a job yourself because at the end of the day, it's not just your salary or your performance you're worried about. It's you know, the employment of other people and their families that you're suddenly taking responsibility for. So I found that kind of the stressful element that I didn't, uh, that didn't appeal to me. You know, do you have to let someone go or are you going to be able to pay bills? And I, I think seeing that all my life just turned me off. So I do think it's an ironic turn of events that I'm now <laughs> running my own business. Um, but I think with everything I've done in my life, I never grew up wanting to go into politics and I certainly never wanted to stand for parliament and I think if you told me 10 years ago I would be you know deeply immersed in politics I would I've stood for parliament twice and that I would run my own business I think I would have laughed at you on all three counts. So yes talking about you standing up for parliament and also starting your own business is something we'd love to get into more but um just after university, can you talk us a bit through your careers and the various positions you've held? There's some very interesting uh, roles you've had, I can see. Sure. Um, so, I, I mean, I think the thing I'd say about my careers to anyone listening is that it's a very, I think we're very lucky in this day and age that you don't leave university and you don't have to go into just one set career. Because when I look back on the last 10 years of working, and it is 10 years since I graduated now, I've had the opportunity to do absolutely amazing things and so in a way disconnected to each other that it's just the freedom to explore. So I, I graduated, I did two years uh, at the Financial Ser Services Authority, which is now the Financial Conduct Authority, so financial regulation. And I had this very ideal, uh, idealistic um, view of what my work would be. I thought, you know, I read economics, I've graduated post-financial crisis and I'll be helping the UK economy and, you know, riding in on my white horse and helping take control of things. And of course, it was very much not that um, because I don't think any graduate job is, you know, what you expect at 21. You think you're going to do incredible life-changing things and the reality is you're learning how to be a useful employee. Um, but I also did it because they did secondments to the IMF and the World Bank and when I read economics at university, I focused on development economics and I really wanted to go and work at the IMF and the World Bank. And just my luck, they froze secondments for the two years that I was there. So at the end of two years, I had this 
kind of mild existential crisis where I just thought to myself, what am I doing? And I looked at my friends who had all been working for you know, kind of a similar amount of time and they just seemed so much further ahead in their careers. They'd done so much, learned so much. And I felt that I just hadn't got to where I'd wanted to two years after graduating. So I handed in my notice. I didn't have another job and I just thought, okay, I live at home. Um, you know, daughter of two accountants, I save very well. So I thought, let me just see how this goes. I want to do development policy. So I did some networking and one person led to another, led to another. And I found out about this organization called the Conservative Friends of International Development. And I begged them to give me a job. And they said, well, we've only got one day a week. It's not very well paid. So I said, it's fine. One day a week is better than zero days a week. And the woman who ran it is this woman called Baroness Jenkin of Kennington. And Jenkin, she is an incredible woman. And she said to me, well, okay, I'll hire you one day a week. Why don't you be my researcher one day a week? And why don't you work for this organization called Women to Win one day a week? Now, Women to Win was set up in 2005 by her and the former Prime Minister, Theresa May, to try and get more women elected to Parliament. And I thought, okay, three days a week is better than one day a week. And I'm a feminist, so that sounds great. And it was the kind of luckiest accident I've had in my life because it, it changed my life, meeting her and working in Parliament. And if you haven't visited Parliament when we're allowed to again, I would highly recommend it because it is such an incredibly inspirational place. There's just this buzz, this energy when you're there. And I got to go, I mean, it's a former palace. I got to go there every single day to work and meet these extraordinary people. And my view on politicians until then had been what I'd read in the newspapers, you know, and I, I'll be perfectly honest and say my opinion wasn't very high of politicians based on what I'd read until then. And when I got to Parliament, I realized, actually, 99% of them are fantastic, work really hard. If you want money and power, it's, you know, when you hear that, that politicians only do the work for the money and power, it's just so not true. Most of them really care about their communities. And so I got this incredible um, introduction to the world of politics. And after a year of doing these kind of three different part-time jobs, an MP took me aside and said, um, why don't you come and work for me as my economic advisor? I need someone who's good at economics and, you know, I like you, so come work for me. So I did on the condition I could keep working for Women to Win because I just loved the idea of supporting other women to get to Parliament. And that's when I kind of thought to myself, you know, maybe I'll be an MP one day. And I spoke to Anne and said, oh, I think in the future I'll stand for Parliament. And this was back in 2013. So obviously we, were, we knew we had an election coming up two years later. And she said, well, why not now? And I kind of said, well, I'm 24. Who, you know, how can I stand for Parliament now? And, uh, you know, you, you think back to these small moments that just change your life completely. She said, well, don't self-select out, try for it. So I did. And in September 2014, I was selected to stand in Dulwich and West Smallwood, which is a seat in South London, very safe Labour seat, Tessa Giles' old seat uh, for any politicos. Um, and, you know, I was never going to win, but did like the fact that Margaret Thatcher had retired there. So, you know, it felt like a special place. And I had the most extraordinary nine months um, running a campaign and getting to understand how it works. And, you know, you don't actually get paid as a candidate. In fact, you spend a lot of your time and money uh, running a campaign, but I had to fundraise. So thanks to amazing friends, family, supporters and activists, you know, I raised over 25,000 pounds. We had fundraisers. Theresa May came and spoke for me at one. And you can imagine as someone in politics having, she was um, Secretary of State at the Home Office at the time. That was 
just such a boost that someone that senior thought it was worth her time to speak for me. So it was an incredible experience. Um, you know, the upside was incredible experiences and meeting people and you get invited onto TV and radio to talk. So you get this real platform to talk about issues that matter to you, which is amazing. Um, the downside, I, I got called a at least once a week, I would have people spitting at me. You know, people forget that politicians are also people. So anyway, I was still working in Parliament while standing for, par standing for Parliament myself. And the MP I worked for got himself into a spot of bother. So there was a scandal and, I mean, it was big and I obviously had nothing to do with it, but it was a very stressful time because, um, you know, when your boss is in the press all the time, you get, again, a lot of abuse sent to the office and we got targeted and it was, that was quite stressful. So I was made redundant because he stood down from parliament. Um, so I treated myself to a few months traveling while I want, worked out what I wanted to do next. I can highly recommend South America if you haven't been. And then I thought, well, I'm quite good at problem solving. I like thinking big ideas and you know that kind of thing. And I'm quite interested in tech. So I started strategy consulting. So that was really fascinating. I worked with clients like Facebook, Reuters, Google, Sky. Um, and it was amazing to be part of something very different and totally on the other side of the policy work I'd been doing before. So I did that uh, for about two and a bit years. Um, and then the 2017 election came up and I got a call and I thought I'll probably sit this one out. The last one was two years ago. I'm still too young and inexperienced to get a, a safe seat. So a seat that I was likely to win. So I just thought this probably isn't for me. And then on my birthday, I was at lunch with my uh, fiance and I got a call saying, hi, I'm calling from the West Midlands. We've been sent your CV and we would like you to fight Coventry Northwest. Let's have them on speaker. My fiance is quickly Googling Coventry Northwest to look, you know, what are the odds and what vote would I have to overturn to win? And it looked, it was a target seat. It was a seat we thought the Conservatives might win. So I said, okay, sure. So went, we both went to Coventry because he's very supportive, came with me. We went to Coventry and after an evening of the selection process, they selected me as their candidate. And um, it was a really intense six weeks. I quit my job, moved to Coventry two days later and was campaigning. I mean, I think I was waking up at seven in the morning between campaigning, managing leaflets, fundraising, doing my own social media, everything, you know, it was mad. I think I was starting at seven in the morning and finishing at kind of one, two in the morning. Um, and I learned things like if you stay out in the rain long enough, jeans will start to turn your legs blue. Um, also, one day I was like, wow, this car smells really musty. And someone was like, yeah, that's you because you keep campaigning in the rain and then sitting in the car and campaigning in the rain. Um, and then I don't know how well you followed the election, but of course we had the most horrendous manifesto and overnight things changed. And the count for anyone who doesn't know on election day, we start at about four in the morning. We campaign from four in the morning till 10 p.m. because you do the early morning drop. So you go and leaflet all the people that you want to go and vote before they go to work. So they wake up at five, six, seven a.m. and they find the leaflets on the door already. And then you go door knocking until 10 p.m. And in a target seat like Coventry Northwest, we door knocked until 10.00. Because, you know, in seats like that, sometimes it comes down to 10 votes making the difference between you becoming the MP or not. And then at 10 o'clock, you quickly change onto something presentable and you head down to the town hall where they count out the votes. 
And it really is what it sounds like. You have to watch them count each vote um, because if there's any disputes um, and there's a lot of um, a lot of ballot papers of male genitalia drawn on them. So you have to think like, is that in the box? In which case it can count as a vote or do we agree this is a spoiled vote? So it's, it's a very long thing. It goes on till about four in the morning. And in 2015, I'd been allowed to be at my own count, but my agent in 2017 said, look, we think this could be tight. And if you're there, we think that the, your volunteers who are checking, uh, we think they'll be distracted. So you can't come in. So I had this really weird situation where my mum, dad, sister and I, and I have to do a shout out for Ria, who was living in Australia at the time. And she flew all the way from Australia to come and campaign for me for a week, just because she was like, if you become an MP, I can't not be there. So, you know, you can see how incredibly supportive my sister, parents and fiance are. They all came to Coventry and kind of lived in hotels and campaigned. So we were all just sitting out there. And then about one in the morning, my fiance was in the hall. He texted me saying, babe, I'm really sorry. I don't think it's looking good. Um, and so the agent said, you can come in now, like you've not won. And you have to go in and you have to smile. You have to, you know, your volunteers have worked. The activists have worked so hard. It's not the time um, to actually feel sorry for yourself because actually there's people who really worked hard for you. Um, and I, I had some not very gracious uh, opponent volunteers in there who were very happy to kind of oh you lost you lost we've rejected you and you kind of think okay fine but you know it's still quite hard you've had no sleep for weeks um, so that was a really difficult experience I think I came back to London luckily my old employer gave me my job back but I think it took much longer than I realized it would or expected it would to kind of deal with that because essentially what it feels like is that 80,000 people have rejected you which is kind of what it is and I think coming that close to your dream and then not getting it it does feel difficult um so I think I kind of stayed for a little bit and after a while I just thought you know what am I doing I love the company I'm working at but what I really love is policy so why am I not working in something related to, to policy why am I not doing something where I feel like I'm making a difference to people um because I love the strategy consulting I worked with amazing people but it just wasn't it wasn't the same. It didn't make me excited to go to work every day. I just had a question on uh, the similarities or any parallels that you can draw between running a business and uh, perhaps running for parliament. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a brilliant question. Um, I think loads. Um, it's slightly different in that, of course, in a campaign, people are not motivated or driven by a salary, uh, which in some ways is a great thing because if you genuinely truly believe in your candidate or really believe in the manifesto they're standing on, it can it, in make you enthused and passionate in a way that no salary ever can. But equally, the challenge is, is that no one works for you. So you can't tell someone to do, there is no telling anyone to do anything in a campaign. Your activists are all volunteers. And if they don't like you, if they don't respect you, if they don't approve of your policy platform or how you're handling yourself, they just won't turn up. And I think that's totally fair because you're asking a huge amount of time, energy, effort, passion from people. And so you have to lead from the front. So, you know, 
you have to be at every campaign session before everyone else. You have to be the first one there, the last one there. Um, so in that sense, I think it's a really good lesson for leadership that short term, of course, you can get stuff out of people if you tell them they have to do something. But actually, what the two campaigns really taught me is how to work with people so that you can benefit from them and they can benefit from you because no matter who the candidate is, no matter who the manager is, no matter who the boss is, whether it's a campaign or a business, actually you get the best out of people if you make them feel valued, appreciated and respected. And you think actually when it comes to business, the successful businesses I see are the ones where regardless of salary, where employers make their employees feel truly respected and valued. That's interesting. Last time we caught up, Resham, you told us a great story about how Podium Perfect came about. Would you like to talk our listeners through that, please? Uh, yes, sure. So, so I have to start the kind of rewind a bit back to 2013. And as I mentioned, we were gearing up for a general election. And so we have at Women to Win, we support all female candidates financially, with training, with mentoring. And so we ran public speaking training for about 100 female candidates. And we used to do this with a public speaking coach. And then one time at the last minute, he was unable to be there. And I just thought, God, some of these women have come from really far. So I don't want to send them away. So I kind of said, you know what, I'll just, I'll train them. I've done a lot of debating and public speaking and model United Nations when I was younger. So my view was, well, better that they had me than nothing and just send them back. So I trained them and actually got really positive feedback. Um, And so I said to the Women to Win team, why don't we carry on um, and I'll train them. And what I did was I would arrange for an MP to come with me because I would give them the public speaking training perspective. The MP would give them obviously their very experienced views on how to actually get through the selection process. So it kind of was a double whammy. So I trained over 100 candidates. And since then, the candidates I've trained, I've trained kind of I've trained hundreds of politicians, I've been flown abroad to train people, and I've trained, I think, 27 MPs at last count. Um, And so it's just been something I've loved doing. And then from there, I started, you know, people kind of found out that I did it. So I started training people for job interviews, uh, for university applications, for wedding speeches, you name it, you know, CEO, leadership uh, pitches at presentations, all those kinds of things, but always in a very ad hoc kind of way. And, uh, you know, I'd always said to my family, my fiance, you know, one day when I have time, I'm going to do this properly. And it was last January, I was flown to Macedonia by the Joint Conservative Party and the Westminster Foundation for Democracy to train politicians from six different countries in the Western Balkans. And I was on the flight out there with a friend who's now an MP. And she turned to me and said, Resh, you've got to do this properly. Like, I don't know why you keep dilly-dallying, just get on with it, set this business up. And, you know, as I said to you, I kind of, I'd been delaying it just because there's so much else happening in politics. And I just thought, you know, I need to do this properly. And earlier this year, when I was looking for a job, uh, obviously job hunting in COVID was, you know, recruitment was frozen everywhere. And my fiance took me aside and was like, this is it. This is the moment you finally have time, set it up. So, you know, kind of thought, okay, you, you know, you're right. I do have time. And so I thought I'll do a free webinar on Eventbrite because there are so many public speaking training courses online, but most of them are quite dry. They're not very interactive. It's quite theoretical. And my view is public speaking is a skill. If you're not practicing, you're not going to get better. So I thought I'd do this free webinar. And we had this bet in my family, you know, how many people would we get signed up? And so, you know, I kind of said 50 and, uh, you know, 
people, my, my dad, my mom, my fiance, my sister were guessing, you know, the highest I think we have is about 300. And the next day I wake up and someone has sent me a screenshot of the money saving expert. So for everyone in the UK, you'll know Martin Lewis, if you're not them. It's just this guy that writes about how to save money. And he'd written a, a newsletter to all his followers saying, there are some great free webinars at the moment um, that you should do to upskill during COVID. Here's one on public speaking. And he'd actually featured my webinar. And suddenly, you know, hundreds of people were booking every hour. So I had to pay to upgrade my Zoom license to be able to fit a thousand people. And it's a very, <laughs> it's a great problem to have on your first webinar. So. I did that, my Zoom license capped out at a thousand. So I had so many people emailing me saying, but we missed it, can we have another one? So I've run that free webinar now quite a few times. I've had about 35,000 people sign up. And the great thing about Zoom becoming a normalized thing is that I've had people from over a hundred different countries watch the webinar. And the great thing is, yes, I'm doing it as a business, but my view is public speaking is such an important skill that very few people get taught at school or university. We never really teach people how to communicate. And I thought, you know, the free webinars are a great way to offer that to people without them having to pay. Because I think, yes, it's a business, but I don't want people to get no training just because finances are an issue. So I run that free training and, and it's just kind of really positively evolved from there. So it's been a really exciting six months and I feel very lucky to have, you know, I have women's networks booking me for conferences. I have corporations and banks coming to me because they've watched the free webinar and they want me to train them. So it's been, I feel very lucky at the way the six months has gone. But of course, it's really, if you think about it, the culmination of eight years of experience that I've finally managed to package up into a business now. That's fantastic. Um, Andy and I actually attended a session, Risham, so thank you for letting us attend that. We thought it was actually, it was great. Really oh, good. <laughs> highly recommend uh, our listeners to to find Podium Perfect and, and check it out, actually. Um, I found it interesting, uh, interesting what you said about imposter syndrome. So that was quite, mm-hmm. I think that, that resonated with me somewhat. So I, I thought that that was great, actually. So um I think what well just to interrupt you on that what's amazing about imposter syndrome is I mean it's especially common in people who are high achievers but what's great about it the reason I publicize it in that webinar and I, I you know for anyone who hasn't done it I do a poll saying have you suffered in the last year and I normally get between two-thirds or you know 80% of people saying they have suffered in the last year alone and what I think is comforting to know about that is we're all sitting here alone feeling like frauds but the reality is most people are feeling that way. And I I find it comforting to know that those feelings of doubt that I suffer are actually incredibly common. And it makes it easier for me to think, oh, okay, well, then I can ignore it because everybody else is doing and I think everybody else is doing really well. So actually, I can just put it to the side and get back to doing my work. That definitely gives some reassurance, I think. And uh, it does probably does to your listeners as well, Risham. Thanks so much, Risham, for sharing that. What's the demographic like for your listeners or watchers online? So it's a total mix. I mean, like I said, um, you know, I know from Eventbrite that people from over 100 countries have booked. And that's that's always amazing to me because I don't know how people um, in all these different countries find out about the webinar. Um, I know that back in July, I haven't checked for August, that my free webinar was the number one trending event on Eventbrite so I presume the algorithm just gets it to people um but I've done no paid advertising and you know it's all been organic so I don't know how it's got to so many different countries um in terms of 
my actual courses, I, my, I think my youngest student has been 11 and my um, oldest participant or my oldest student has been in their late 70s. So it really is a spread. It's, um, I've had people coming because they say, you know, I have to do a wedding speech and I don't know how. I've had people coming because they say they've got a pitch to the uh, senior leadership team or to the board in a few months and they want to prepare. So it really is the full spectrum. We're just going to take a quick break. If you like what you're hearing, please remember to hit the subscribe button and we'd love to hear your feedback. So please remember to leave us a review. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter on our handle Business Over Chai or on our website at businessoverchai.com. Thanks again. And now back to the podcast. Resham, I think while we're discussing uh, your journey so far, I think we all know that, you know, you're a very good speaker. But I think one thing that really hits home is that you have this go-getter attitude. Um, where did this go-getter attitude come from? And do you think it's important um, to have that, A, in kind of life itself, and B, if you want to become an entrepreneur? Oh, that's a difficult question because I've always been like this. So it's very difficult for me to imagine what life would be like with a different personality type. Um, I think growing up, I just always had this view that, you know, you can do everything and anything. I would go to school and then after school, some days I would have two activities, um, you know, because I was a, I used to compete in trampolining and gymnastics. I was a county badminton player. I was a semi-professional dancer. I played the double bass. So, you know, some days after school, I would go from one to another and come home at eight and then be doing my homework. So actually, for me, as I've got older, I've had to really practice saying no to things because my kind of normal is to just take on more and more rather than focusing on the things I'm doing. In terms of being an entrepreneur, I honestly don't know because I think I think entrepreneurs work the way that works best for them. And I don't have a partner, an official partner. Of course, I'm, I'm very lucky that my parents, my fiance helped me so much. And, you know, Praz, my fiance does so much of the tech stuff for me because I'm not very good at that. Um, and we'll always bounce ideas back and forth with me. Well, you know, he'll tell me how they've done their marketing so I can kind of learn off that. Um, but I think for me, it's really helped that I love achieving things. Anytime I get something done, I'm thinking, okay, what's next? What more could I do? How could I improve that? How could I build on that? And I think for the kind of personality type I am, it's been dealing with that imposter syndrome that's been the best thing to enable me to be a better entrepreneur because I'm much less doubtful of myself now than I was five years ago. Russian, do you want to speak a little bit about um, Podium Peers, perhaps? Um... Of course. So I, so for Podium Perfect, I run four-week courses. So it's an hour a week for four weeks. And it's a small group, 12 to 16 people. So we do lots of interactive exercises. We do homework. Uh, well, obviously, I don't do the homework. I set the homework. But participants do homework. And the whole thing culminates in them doing a one-minute speech in week four. And... Uh, I give them feedback, they get feedback from the other participants. So it's a really good way of practicing the tips and tools that I teach. And at the end of four weeks, I always ask people to fill in like a short piece of feedback to explain, you know, what they would prefer next time. Because my view is you should always be reiterating and improving. I never want to get stuck doing just the same thing. And the feedback I got again and again and again, and I've now run the course, I think, um, 
the feedback I've had from about 90% of them is this was great as a kind of a kickstart, an intensive session, but we want something that we can dip in and out of over time. We don't want it to just be one month, but equally we can't commit to doing an hour a week, every week, you know, forever. So after doing some research and talking to people, I'd seen some other people doing subscription groups. You know, you pay a small fee every month and then you get access to Facebook lives and Q and A's. And I've seen it for things like Instagram for business or, you know, lots of makeup artists do it to teach makeup. Um, but podium peers, the idea is, is that we build a community of like-minded people. So people who want to improve their public speaking. And I do regular Facebook lives and regular Q and A's. There's opportunities for people to practice their speeches and presentations. So if you had, for example, a speech you needed to give at work or a presentation, you could deliver a minute or two of it and get my feedback, get feedback from other people in the group, lots of tips and tools to help you practice. And the idea is, is that you can dip in and out. So let's say you have a busy couple of weeks at work, no problem. Uh, the week after when your project's done, you can always check back in on the group and practice. Um, because a few years ago, I did join an in-person speaking club and I found having that regular practice was so valuable. And so Podium Peers offers that. So it's just, it's a really exciting project. And, you know, I just thought because everyone's used to doing things online and because of Facebook Lives, it means that all you have to have is a Facebook account and I can help support you and guide you and teach you. That's really fascinating, actually, um, Resh. Could you share about some of the challenges you faced in running the business? Um, I mean, I think... I think what's been really hard is, you know, normally when you run a business, and I say when you normally when you run a business, this is just based on what I think. So <laughs> there's no kind of factual or serious studies I'm basing this on. But when I try and benchmark my business, that it's very hard to find direct competitors, right? So, you know, there are some public speaking coaches who charge thousands of pounds. You know, um, some of the coaches I know of will charge a thousand pounds for three hours. Um, and they will only work with you if you commit to X number of days or time. And then, and then there's lots of public speaking coaches who offer courses online, but it's not interactive at all. So you can watch 10 hours of video, but there's no practical exercises there's no working one-to-one -one. so I think what I found difficult is working out I see this gap in the market how do I actually test whether that's what consumers want how do you price that how do you market that how do you actually you know grow the business and so I think it's been and for me it was how to manage this whole business totally online because I started I did my first webinar for Podium Perfect on the 30th of April. And so my entire business life has been during lockdown. So that was a challenge in itself at first. And now the challenge is as things start to, to kind of go back to some sort of semblance of normal life, how to manage the business now that people are starting to want to do things in person again. But it's been fascinating. And I think the positive thing is, um, is that, you know, you can kind of experiment. So I did a whole load on social media um, and then decided it just didn't suit the brand. So I just deleted the posts and redid them. Um, you know, I tried a certain price point and thought, actually, this just isn't working. So I changed it. I changed the content. I changed the offering. So I think it's been really fun to experiment. But I think the hardest thing has been, you know, the inability to benchmark, because I think that often gives 
new businesses an opportunity to understand what might work for them. And I just don't feel I have that right now. Great, fantastic. And in terms of the challenges you faced, uh, Resham, uh, whether it be in entrepreneurial life or political life, um, being a female uh, or coming from an Asian background, mm-hmm. have there been any? And what's your experience been like? So just before I answer that directly for myself, I just want to give you an anecdote because I think, I think it's important to recognize. Um, so I do a lot of going to, I'm a, a trustee of the Fawcett Society, which is the UK's leading uh, charity on gender equality. And I also, because of Women to Win, do a lot of work at these kinds of events and try and uh, upskill myself and get more knowledge. And I went to a UN Women event and all the attendees were ethnic minority women. And we were on a table of, uh, I think, 11 or 12. And the moderator said, who thinks that they have been more affected by being uh, of an ethnic minority than they have by being female? And 11 of the women on the table put their hands up. I kind of looked at them and thought, oh, really? Because as far as I'm aware, that there are almost, I don't think my career has been affected by me being Indian at all. Um, In fact, obviously, I know I'm a different color to people in the room, but it's never something that registers in my head. I never kind of think, oh God, I'm the only brown person or I'm the only Indian. Um, And then they said, who thinks they've been more affected by being a woman? And I was the only person on my table that felt I was more affected by being a woman. And someone on the table turned to me and said, and I thought this was (laughs) quite a rude way of putting it, but you know, I have a thick skin, so I kind of just shrugged it off. And she said, well, of course you being um, Indian hasn't affected you. Uh, Look at the way you you talk. You've totally whitewashed your voice. And I thought, well, this is just, you know, I grew up in London. Of course, I'm going to sound like any other person who grew up in London. My parents have been here since they were teenagers. So, you know, of course, I have a UK accent. And she said, I bet people don't even realize you're Indian when you speak to them on the phone. I was kind of like, well, I've never thought about that. But probably they don't actually until they hear my name or until they see me. And so I think, you know, that story is just such a clear example that whilst I feel being Indian hasn't affected me negatively in any way, um, you know, for lots of people it has. So I would hate to undermine anyone else's experiences. I've been very fortunate. I don't think it's mattered at all. Um, Sadly, the female thing has been a problem and I've noticed it in several roles uh, where, you know, one job I worked in, a male manager made a very inappropriate sexual comment to me when I reported it to my manager I I was 21 or 22 I said I feel really uncomfortable about the fact that this this senior guy said this to me and my manager just said oh don't worry I'll take you off all the projects with him and I, I kind of was like but it's it's good for my career to be on those projects so how is the outcome not will tell him that that's unacceptable behavior how is it that my career is suffering Um, And the sad thing is when I told that story to all my friends and obviously with the Me Too movement, we all spoke about our past experiences. Every single female friend I have has had experiences of male seniors at work um, preventing them from being able to succeed in their career because of sexual, inappropriate sexual comments or actions. And so I think that to me has been sad. I haven't had anything in politics, which has been great. Um, you know, nothing serious enough to affect my career. Sometimes people make comments and then you tell them where to go. Um, But actually, people think politics is the worst place to work. But what I would say is, in the time I was in Parliament, people were hugely supportive, very encouraging, and 
you know, there was never any issue about, oh, you, you know, you'd be an Indian MP or you'd be a female MP or you'd be a female Indian MP. It was like, oh, great. You want to be an MP. That was it. <laughs> wow. And you were the youngest ethnic minority candidate, right? Yes. Yeah. In 2015, I was the youngest uh, ethnic minority candidate that the party had, um, which, you know, is a nice flag to have. Sadly, I'm the wrong side of 30 now, so I don't think I'll get that title again. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. I, it depends how you interpret it. It depends how you've been raised and your perspectives on life, right? But to me, actually, it's been a real positive because there are so few ethnic minority women in the Conservative Party that it's much easier for people to remember who I am because there's only a few of us. So whilst I'm working very hard to get more BME women to come forward, um, I don't see it as a negative. I just see it as a, okay, it's the reality of life right now, but you know, in five or 10 years time, it won't be the reality because with Women to Win, with the Conservative Friends of India, with all these other organizations, we will change that and you know, help other people break their glass ceilings until it's totally normal and accepted. So interesting, Rush. Thanks for sharing this. I just had a question around passion and um, the entrepreneur story for a lot of people. I think a lot of people might run into starting up a business because they purely want to just make money, um, while others want ha first have a, an actual passion, just like yourself. You built up all this experience, and now you want to actually, you know, start this business. Uh, do you think you need to have a passion um, before, or do you think you should just go out there and just start making money as much, as quick as possible and then think about where your passion actually lies or exists? Well, I think it works both ways. I mean, I know lots of people who have talked for years about, you know, I want to run my own business and I, you know, I want to be able to run the show and I have a certain vision about how I would do things and they wait for the idea to come to them. And I think that's perfectly valid. If you know you want to run a business and you just don't know what, then of course you wait until inspiration hits you or you find a way. Um, but equally for me, it was very much the opposite. I found something that I loved doing. I found something that I was good at and wanted to do more of. Um, and so, you know, I guess it's chicken and egg, but for me, it was very much find, you know, what the business would be, work out the basics. And, you know, I talk about it, a lot of people say, oh, wow, you know, the business has only been going six months um, and you've had, you know, 30,000 signups or you've trained over a hundred politicians. And I go, well, yes, but actually most businesses it's like an iceberg. What you see at the very top on top of the water is actually not an accurate representation of everything that's gone on beneath. And so I think that's very true for my business that it's been years in the making. I just didn't realize it was in the making until that conversation in April when Praz said to me, you know, do this free webinar. So mine was very much not about being an entrepreneur. It's just apparently I am one. So... <laughs> The business I have chosen to do or that I've ended up doing is not so costly that I can't try and fail. You know, you, you think of some people who run businesses and they require so much money up front or you've got people who aren't very cautious with their spending in setting up a business. And then, of course, there is big downside as well. Whereas my view is if it doesn't work out, it's not cost me crazy amounts and I can always just stop doing it. So it's been a relatively safe experiment, which has worked out quite nicely for me.
Resham, you mentioned earlier that uh, perhaps technology is not your kind of uh, best attributes and, and you know you, it's not it's not something that you're most comfortable <laughs> with but yes. clearly you've overcome those um given that a lot of businesses these days are digital in nature or, or on the internet at least or at least having some sort of presence online how do you overcome these obstacles and um do you think it's enough for someone to be afraid of starting their business or do you think they should they should go for it I'd always say go for it but the other piece of advice I'd say along with that is ask as much as you can um, and you know you don't ask you don't get and that's true for everything so I'm not particularly experienced in, in actually doing social media you know I'm very good at doing the content the content strategy or the planning because that's the experience I've had um, with Women to Win and at UCAD but I've not been the person day to day creating the content and so actually I just started asking, you know, I'd put up in my WhatsApp groups, I'd message people and say, I know you're doing, you know, I've seen your Instagram posts. I think they look great. Do you have 20 minutes to talk about how to do it um, or what you did or what tools do you use? What, what did you find useful or helpful? Because I think actually I'm a big fan of collaboration. I think that's come from the politics that if hundreds, thousands of people have done something that you're trying to do, Obviously, I wouldn't ask a direct competitor, but if someone in a different field has experience that I could benefit from, why not ask? Um, and worst case, they say, no, I don't want to tell you, or I don't want to help you. But actually, most people really like helping others. They like sharing their knowledge. They like being able to say, um, oh, you like the thing I did? Well, let me tell you how I did it. So actually giving people that chance to help and support you is great. Um, you can always trade or barter. If I didn't have a fiance who is very good at the tech stuff, then I probably would find people and say, how about I trade you public speaking lessons for helping me with my tech stuff. So I think even if you aren't particularly um, liquid when you start a business, there are lots of different ways that you can um, do things. And there are so many different apps that give you, you know, a month for free or, you know, I'll, I'll just, I was having troubles with my Zoom license, so I just emailed their sales support and immediately they got it sorted for me. So, you know, ask, ask, ask and keep plugging away because actually it's much easier than you think. And I think the other piece of advice I give entrepreneurs who are nervous about starting is don't think about the end product. And what I mean by that is, of course, you have to think about what you're trying to create. But if I sat back in April saying, um, you know, I need to think about my course content. I need to think about what I'll publish for Podium Peers. I need to think about my corporate offering. I think I would have been overwhelmed by the amount I had to do. So in the first few weeks, I kind of said to myself, right, I need to think about the content for one 30-minute webinar. And I need to work out what I need to do to make that happen. And so that was my project for April. And then I made that happen. And then by that time, working out the next step was not so challenging because I had some really good content. I'd worked out what worked in terms of marketing and I could build on that. So big picture is great, but don't get scared by how big that big picture can be. Yeah, no, I, I really have to agree with you on that one. Just breaking things down more simply into smaller chunks and approaching it one by one is really, really important. That's really good advice. Absolutely. And you have to zoom in and out, of course. I mean, I'm a big fan of planning. I'm a big fan of um, spreadsheets and notepads. And, you know, I, I always 
like to have a, you know, what's my plan for, the, for today? What's my plan for the next week, the next month, the next year? But you have to be able to be flexible and you have to be able to change it up and not let yourself. And I do get stressed. I do get, of course, I get nervous at times about how big the to-do list is. But you just have to keep remembering why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and I, I talk in my free webinar about a sense of perspective. Um, it's about getting that sense of perspective. Like if I don't get to do the post for podium peers that I wanted to today, does it matter if I don't get to do it till tomorrow? Probably not. If I don't get, you know, this client this week, um, can I focus on getting a better client next week? Uh, you know, and getting that sense of perspective, having the compassion for yourself to be a little bit kind, especially when you're a startup, you know, is really important because I think about Instagram versus reality that when you look at other startups, it's so easy to see them talk about, oh, you know, we've done X million pounds worth of deals or we've sold X million worth of services. But if you actually knew the details, you might know that they've made a loss for three years or you might know that, you know, they've had a huge amount of money from one client who's just gone bankrupt, but you only see the good in other businesses. And so I think as an entrepreneur, it's really important to keep remembering Instagram is not reality. And that applies to your competitors and to other startups. So Resh, if there were three things that you could do differently in hindsight, what do you think they would be and why? Do you know, I, I honestly haven't thought about what I would do differently. So you've really thrown me with that question. And I don't think I'm normally thrown by questions. Um, I think I would have asked more people sooner for, for help and advice. Um, I think because I was quite nervous it wouldn't work out, I kept it quite close to my chest in terms of actually getting advice and ideas from other people. And I think, you know, once the first webinar started getting booked, then I kind of thought, oh, okay, now I can tell people because it won't be embarrassing um, if it does badly. And I think for people who are new to working in startups for startups or running startups, I think that fear is very common to feel that you'll be embarrassed if it doesn't work out. Um, but actually, I think we're the only people judging ourselves that harshly. I think if I tried and 30 people had shown up, I don't think most people focus on their own issues. So I don't think most people would have been like, oh my God, poor Russian, she did so terribly, only 30 people came. They'd have just gone, oh, Russian did a webinar, or they might not have talked about it at all. Um, so I think that's definitely one. I think, um, I, think I, I wish I'd just done it sooner. You know, I, I think everything happens for a reason and everything happens at the right time, but I've really enjoyed the last six months and I feel a bit, uh, a bit, sad that I've not been doing this for years because it's been going really well so far and I've liked it much more than I thought. Um, and I think, I think I would have told myself not to be bothered by negative feedback earlier. And it's not negative feedback on the course. It's, you tend to get people, you know, you're right. You're giving free webinars. I, I can't tell you the number of people who either miss the webinar um, or they misunderstand the time difference. And, you know, I say on there, like, this is Google time in London, if you're not sure about the time. I say it's 6 p.m. in London. It's at this time in California, this time in New York, this time in London, this time in India, this time in Australia. But, of course, I can't give every time zone. So sometimes, you know, I get 
kind of abusive emails from people uh, because they're upset they've missed it. And in the first month or two, I'd get quite upset that, you know, why is this person sending me such a horrible email? I'm doing something for free. I don't, you know, you don't owe it to anyone to do, give them free time. Um, and actually after about, uh, you know, the first two or three free webinars, I was just like, why am I letting it get to me? You know, people have the right to say what they want to, and I have the right to not be upset by it or not be frustrated by it. So now it's like water off a duck's back. But I think I wasted time at the beginning feeling too judged by other people for the work I was doing. And there will always be people who criticize you and there'll always be people who think they could tell you what to do better. And, you know, you just have to ignore that. Otherwise, you'll just be upset and stressed about why they think that. Great, fantastic. Um, and lastly, Resham, this is a question we like to ask all our listeners. Um, if you could invite three people for chai, who would they be and why? <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm going to imagine, I'm going to be cheeky and assume that because my parents and fiance are already in my house, they're already here for chai. So I'm going to give okay. myself three more on top of them. And I would say my twin sister, Ria, because I haven't seen her in a very long time. Uh, my cousin, brother, Sunit, who um, I also haven't seen since Christmas and we're super close. And the third person I'd say, just because I think most of us would love it, um, is Margaret Thatcher, because she's the great Margaret Thatcher in my house. So it would be fantastic to just have her here for chai with some of my favourite people. Great. Brilliant. Fantastic. Okay. Andy, is there anything else that we've missed out? Or Resham, is there anything you we haven't spoken about that you'd like to include? Uh, well, actually, yes. There's one thing I'd like to say, sure. um, which is... Whether it's starting your own business, I mean, I think I've spoken quite a lot about that. But the thing I'd really love to say is I know I've talked very honestly about standing for Parliament, but it was the best thing I've done and I could not recommend it more highly. And studies have shown that it takes a woman three times to be asked to stand for Parliament before she'll consider it. So to all the great men and women, but especially the women listening to this, please consider standing for Parliament because we need brilliant women in every parliament, wherever in the world you are. Fantastic. Sounds great. Brilliant. Resham, uh, in terms of people uh, getting in touch with you, find out more about Podium Perfect, um, how, how can they do that? Uh, yeah, it's just put my handle for all social media is Podium Perfect. Fantastic. If anyone does want to, uh, my website is www.podiumperfect.co.uk and I offer free consultation. So if anyone is interested, um, in talking about their public speaking needs then do get in touch hi there thanks again for listening to the business over chai podcast if you like this content please hit subscribe and if you have any feedback please give us a review you can also follow us on instagram facebook or twitter with the handle business over chai or alternatively on our website businessoverchai.com thanks again for listening